Part Two, Chapter Nine, Part One of The Job. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Job by Sinclair Lewis. Part Two, The Office. Chapter Nine, Part One. The effect of grief is commonly reputed to be noble, but mostly it is a sterile nobility. Witness the widows who drape their musty weeds over all the living. Witness the mother of a son killed in war, who urges her son's comrades to bring mourning to the mothers of all the sons on the other side. Grief is a paralyzing poison. It broke down Una's resistance to the cares of the office. Hers was no wholesome labor in which she could find sacred forgetfulness. It was the round of unessentials which all office women know so desperately well. She bruised herself by shrinking from those hourly insults to her intelligence, and outside the office her most absorbing comfort was in the luxury of mourning, passion in black, even to the black-edged face-veil, though she was human enough to realize that with her fair hair she looked rather well in mourning, and shrewd enough to get it on credit at excellent terms. She was in the office all day, being as curtly exact as she could, but in the evening she sat alone in her flat and feared the city. Sometimes she rushed down to the Sessions's flat, but the good people bored her with their assumption that she was panting to know all the news from Panama. She had drifted so far away from the town that the sixth assertion that it was a great pity Kitty Wilson was going to marry that worthless Clark boy aroused no interest in her. She was still more bored by their phonograph, on which they played over and over the same twenty records. She would make quick, unconvincing excuses about having to hurry away. Their slippered stupidity was a desecration of her mother's memory. Her half-hysterical fear of the city's power was increased by her daily encounter with the clamorous streets, crowded elevators, frantic lunchrooms, and, most of all, the experience of the subway. Amazing, incredible, the subway, and the fact that human beings could become used to it, consent to spend an hour in it daily. There was a heroic side to this spectacle of steel trains clanging at forty miles an hour beneath twenty-story buildings. The engineers had done their work well, made a great thought in steel and cement, and then the businessmen and bureaucrats had made the great thought a curse. There was in the subway all the romance which storytelling youth goes seeking, trains crammed with an inconceivable complexity of people, marquees of the Holy Roman Empire, Jewish factory hands, speculators from Wyoming, Iowa dairymen, quarreling Italian lovers, with their dramatic tales, their flux of every human emotion, under the city mask. But however striking these dramatic characters may be to the occasional spectator, 
They figure merely as an odor, a confusion, to the permanent surf of the subway. A long underground station, a catacomb with a cement platform, this was the chief feature of the city vista to the tired girl who waited there each morning. A clean space, but damp, stale, like the corridor to a prison, as indeed it was, since through it each morning Una entered the day's business life. Then the train approaching, filling the tunnel like a piston smashing into a cylinder, the shoving rush to get aboard, a crush that was ruffling and fatiguing to a man, but to a woman was horror. Una stood with a hulking man pressing as close to her side as he dared, and a dapper clerkling squeezed against her breast. Above her head, to represent the city's culture and graciousness, there were advertisements of soap, stockings, and collars. At curves the wheels ground with a long, savage whine, the train heeled, and she was flung into the arms of the grinning clerk who held her tight. She, who must never be so unladylike as to enter a polling place, had breathed into her very mouth the clerkling's virile electoral odor of cigarettes and onions and decayed teeth. A very good thing, the subway. It did make Una quiver with the beginnings of rebellious thought, as no suave preacher could ever have done. Almost hysterically she resented this daily indignity, which smeared her clean, cool womanhood with a grease of noise and smell and human contact. As was the subway, so were her noons of elbowing to get impure food in restaurants. For reward she was permitted to work all day with Troy Wilkins, and for heavens and green earth she had a chair and a desk. But the human organism, which can modify itself to arctic cold and Indian heat, to incessant labor or the long enervation of luxury, learns to endure. Unwilling dressing, lonely breakfast, the subway, dull work, lunch, sleepiness after lunch, the hopelessness of three o'clock, the boss's ill tempers, then the subway again, and a lonely flat with no love, no creative work, and at last a long sleep so that she might be fresh for such another round of delight. So went the days. Yet all through them she found amusement, laughed now and then, and proved the heroism as well as the unthinking servility of the human race. The need of feeling that there were people near to her urged Una to sell her furniture and move from the flat to a boarding-house. She avoided Mrs. Sessions's advice. She was sure that Mrs. Sessions would bustle about and find her a respectable place where she would have to be cheery. She didn't want to be cheery. She wanted to think. She even bought a serious magazine with articles. Not that she read it but she was afraid to be alone any more. Anyway, she would explore the city. Of the many New Yorks, she had found only Morningside Park, Central Park, 
Riverside Drive, the shopping district, the restaurants and theaters which Walter had discovered to her, a few downtown office streets, and her own arid region of flats. She did not know the proliferating east side, the factories, the endless semi-suburban stretches, nor Fifth Avenue. Her mother and Mrs. Sessions had inculcated in her the earnest idea that most parts of New York weren't quite nice. In over two years in the city she had never seen a millionaire nor a criminal. She knew the picturesqueness neither of wealth nor of pariah poverty. She did not look like an adventurer when, at a Saturday noon of October, she left the office, slight, kindly, rather timid, with her pale hair and schoolteacher eyeglasses, and clear cheeks set off by comely mourning. But she was seizing New York. She said over and over, "'Why, I can go and live any place I want to, and maybe I'll meet some folks who are simply fascinating.' She wasn't very definite about these fascinating folks, but they implied girls to play with and, she hesitated, and decidedly men, men different from Walter, who would touch her hand in courtly reverence. She poked through strange streets. She carried an assortment of rooms and board clippings from the want-ad page of a newspaper, and obediently followed their hints about finding the perfect place. She resolutely did not stop at places not advertised in the paper, though nearly every house in some quarters had a sign, Room to Rent. Una still had faith in the veracity of whatever appeared in the public prints, as compared with what she dared see for herself. The advertisements led her into a dozen parts of the city frequented by rumors, the lonely, gray, detached people who dwell in other people's houses. It was not so splendid a quest as she had hoped. It was too sharp a revelation of the cannon food of the city, the people who had never been trained and who had lost heart. It was scarcely possible to tell one street from another, to remember whether she was on 16th Street or 26th, always the same rows of red brick or brownstone houses, all alike, the monotony broken only by infrequent warehouses or loft buildings, always the same doubtful mounting of stone steps, the same searching for a bell, the same waiting, the same slatternly, suspicious landlady, the same evil hallway with a brown hat-rack, a steel engraving with one corner stained with yellow, a carpet worn through to the flooring in a large oval hole just in front of the stairs, a smell of cabbage, a lack of ventilation, always the same desire to escape, though she waited politely while the landlady in the same familiar harsh voice went through the same formula. Then, before she could flee to the comparatively fresh air of the streets, Una would politely have to follow the panting landlady to a room that was a horror of dirty carpet, lumpy mattress, 
and furniture with everything worn off that could wear off, and at last, always the same phrases by which Una meant to spare the woman, "'Well, I'll think it over. Thank you so much for showing me the rooms. But before I decide, want to look around.' Phrases which the landlady heard ten times a day. She conceived a great-hearted pity for landladies. They were so patient, in face of her evident distaste, even their suspiciousness was but the growling of a beaten dog. They sighed and closed their doors on her without much attempt to persuade her to stay. Her heart ached with their lack of imagination. They had no more imagination than those landladies of the insect world, the spiders, with their unchanging, instinctive, ancestral types of webs. Her depression was increased by the desperate physical weariness of the hunt. Not that afternoon, not till two weeks later, did she find a room in a large, long, somber railroad flat on Lexington Avenue, conducted by a curly-haired young bookkeeper and his pretty wife, who provided their clients with sympathy, with extensive and scientific data regarding the motion picture houses in the neighborhood, and board, which was neither scientific nor very extensive. It was time for Una to sacrifice the last material contact with her mother, to sell the furniture which she had known ever since, as a baby in Panama, she had crawled from this horsehair chair, all the long and perilous way across this same brown carpet, to this red plush couch. It was not so hard to sell the furniture. She could even read and burn her father's letters with an unhappy resoluteness. Despite her tenderness, Una had something of youth's joy in getting rid of old things, as preparation for acquiring the new. She did sob when she found her mother's straw hat, just as Mrs. Golden had left it, on the high shelf of the wardrobe, as though her mother might come in at any minute, put it on, and start for a walk. She sobbed again when she encountered the tiny tear in the bottom of the couch, which her own baby fingers had made in trying to enlarge a pirate's cave. That brought the days when her parents were immortal and all-wise, when the home sitting-room, where her father read the paper aloud, was a security against all the formidable world outside. But to these recollections Una could shut her heart. To one absurd thing, because it was living, Una could not shut her heart, to the senile canary. Possibly she could have taken it with her, but she felt confusedly that Dicky would not be appreciated in other people's houses. She evaded asking the Sessionses to shelter the bird, because every favor that she permitted from that smug family was a bond that tied her to their life of married spinsterhood. "'Oh, Dicky, Dicky, what am I going to do with you?' she cried, slipping a finger through the wires of the cage. The canary hopped toward her and tried to chirp his greeting. "'Even when you were sick you tried to sing to me, and Mother did love you,' she sighed. 
I just can't kill you, trusting me like that. She turned her back, seeking to solve the problem by ignoring it, while she was sorting dresses, some trace of her mother in every fold, every wrinkle of the waists and lace collars, she was listening to the bird in the cage. "'I'll think of some way. I'll find somebody who will want you, Dickie, dear,' she murmured, desperately, now and then. After dinner and nightfall, with her nerves twanging all the more because it seemed silly to worry over one dissolute old bird when all her life was breaking up, she hysterically sprang up, snatched Dickie from the cage, and trotted downstairs to the street. "'I'll leave you somewhere. Somebody will find you,' she declared. Concealing the bird by holding it against her breast, with a hand super-sensitive to its warm little feathers, she walked till she found a deserted tenement doorway. She hastily set the bird down on a stone balustrade beside the entrance steps. Dicky chirped more cheerily, more sweetly than for many days, and confidingly hopped back to her hand. "'Oh, I can't leave him for boys to torture, and I can't take him. I can't—' In a sudden spasm she threw the bird into the air and ran back to the flat, sobbing. "'I can't kill it. I can't. There's so much death.' Longing to hear the quavering affection of its song once more, but keeping herself from even going to the window to look for it, with bitter haste she completed her work of getting rid of things, 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 the things which were stones of an imprisoning past. Shyness was over Una when at last she was in the house of strangers. She sat marveling that this square, white cubbyhole of a room was hers permanently, that she hadn't just come here for an hour or two. She couldn't get it to resemble her first impression of it, now the hallway was actually a part of her life. Every morning she would face the picture of a magazine cover girl when she came out of her room. Her agitation was increased by the problem of keeping up the maiden modesty appropriate to a golden, a young female friend of the Sessions's, in a small flat with gentlemen lodgers and just one bathroom. Una was saved by not having a spinster friend with whom to share her shrinking modesty. She simply had to take waiting for her turn at the bathroom as a matter of course, and insensibly she was impressed by the decency with which these dull, ordinary people solved the complexities of their enforced intimacy. When she wildly clutched her virgin bathrobe about her and passed a man in the hall, he stalked calmly by without any of the teetering apologies which broad-beamed Mr. Sessions had learned from his genteel spouse. She could not at first distinguish among her companions. Gradually they came to be distinct, important, they held numberless surprises for her. She would not have supposed that a bookkeeper in a fish market would be likely to possess charm, particularly if he combined that amorphous occupation 
with being a boarding-house proprietor. Yet her landlord, Herbert Gray, with his look of a track athlete, his confessions of ignorance, and his naive enthusiasms about whatever in the motion pictures seemed to him heroic, large, colorful, was as admirable as the several youngsters of her town who had plodded through Princeton or Pennsylvania and come back to practice law or medicine or gentlemanly inheritance of business. And his wife, round and comely, laughing easily, wearing her clothes with an untutored grace which made her cheap waists smart, was so thoroughly her husband's comrade in everything that these struggling nobodies had all the riches of the earth. The Greys took Una in as though she were their guest, but they did not bother her. They were city-born, taught by the city to let other people live their own lives. The Greys had taken a flat twice too large for their own use. The other lodgers, who lived like monks on a bare corridor, along the narrow railroad hall, were three besides Una. A city failure, one with a hundred thousand failures, a gray-haired, neat man who had been everything and done nothing, and who now said evasively that he was in the collection business. He read Dickens and played a masterful game of chess. He liked to have it thought that his past was brave with mysterious splendors. He spoke hintingly of great lawyers but he had been near to them only as a clerk for a large law firm. He was grateful to anyone for noticing him. Like most of the failures, he had learned the art of doing nothing at all. All Sunday, except for a two-hour's walk in Central Park and one game of chess with Herbert Gray, he dawdled in his room, slept, regarded his stocking feet with an appearance of profound meditation, yawned, picked at the Sunday newspaper. Una once saw him napping on a radiant autumn Sunday afternoon, and detested him. But he was politely interested in her work for Troy Wilkins, carefully exact in saying, "'Good morning, miss,' and he became as familiar to her as the gas heater in her cubicle. Second fellow lodger was a busy, reserved woman, originally from Kansas City, who had something to do with some branch library. She had solved the problems of woman's lack of place in this city scheme by closing tight her emotions, her sense of adventure, her hope of friendship. She never talked to Una, after discovering that Una had no interesting opinions on the best reading for children nine to eleven. These gentle, inconsequential city waifs, the greys, the failure, the library woman, meant no more to Una than the crowds who were near yet so detached in the streets. But the remaining boarder annoyed her by his noisy whine. He was an underbred maverick, with sharp eyes of watery blue, a thin mustache, large teeth, and no chin worth noticing. 
He would bounce in of an evening, when the others were being decorous and dull in the musty dining-room, and yelp, "'How do we all find our sesquipedalian selves this bright and balmy evening? How does your perspicacity discipulate, Herbie? What's the good word, Miss Golden?' "'Well, well, well, if here ain't our good old friend, the Reverend J. Pilkington Corn Beef. How are you, Pilky? Old Mrs. Cabbage feeling well, too? Well, well, still discussing the movies, Herbie? Got any new opinions about Mary Pickford? Well, well, say, I met another guy that's as nutty as you, Herbie. He thinks that Wilhelm Jenkins Bryan is a great statesman. Let's hear some more about the Sage of Free Silver, Herbie.' The little man was never content till he had drawn them into so bitter an argument that someone would rise, throw down a napkin, growl, "'Well, if that's all you know about it, if you're all as ignorant as that, you simply ain't worth arguing with,' and stalk out. When general topics failed, the disturber would catechize the library woman about Louisa M. Alcott, or the failure about his desultory inquiries into Christian science, or Mrs. Gray about the pictures plastering the dining-room, a dozen spiritual revelations of apples and oranges, which she had bought at a department store sale. The Maverick's name was Fillmore J. Benson. Strangers called him Benny, but his more intimate acquaintances— those to whom he had talked for at least an hour, were requested to call him Phil. He made a number of pretty puns about his first name. He was, surprisingly, a doctor, not the sort that studies science, but the sort that studies the gullibility of human nature, a doctor of manipulative osteology. He had earned a diploma by a correspondence course and had scrabbled together a small practice among retired shopkeepers. He was one of the strange, impudent race of fakers who prey upon the clever city. He didn't expect anyone at the Greys to call him a doctor. He drank whiskey and gambled for pennies, was immoral in his relations with women, and as thick-skinned as he was blatant. He had been a newsboy, a contractor's clerk, and climbed up by the application of his wits. He read enormously. Newspapers, cheap magazines, medical books. He had an opinion about everything, and usually worsted everyone at the greys in arguments. And he did his patients good by giving them sympathy and massage, he would have been an excellent citizen had the city not preferred to train him as a child in its reeling streets to a sharp unscrupulousness. Una was at first disgusted by Phil Benson, then perplexed. He would address her in stately Shakespearean phrases which, as a boy, he had heard from the gallery of the Academy of Music. He would quote poetry at her. She was impressed when he almost silenced the library woman in an argument as to whether Longfellow or Whittier was the better poet by parroting the whole of Snowbound. She fancied that Phil's general pea-weevil aspect concealed the soul of a poet, 
but she was shocked out of her pleasant fabling when Phil roared at Mrs. Gray. "'Say, what did the baker use this pie for? A bureau or a trunk? I've found three pairs of socks and a safety pin in my slab so far.' Pretty Mrs. Gray was hurt and indignant, while her husband growled, "'Aw, don't pay any attention to that human phonograph, Amy. He's got bats in his belfry.' Una had acquired a hesitating fondness for the mute gentleness of the others, and it infuriated her that this insect should spoil their picnic. But after dinner Phil Benson dallied over to her, sat on the arm of her chair, and said, "'I'm awful sorry that I make such a bum hit with you, Miss Golden. Oh, I can see I do all right. You're the only one here that can understand. Somehow it seems to me—' You aren't like other women, I know. There's something, somehow, it's different, a, a temperament. You dream about higher things than just food and clothes. Oh, he held up a deprecating hand, don't deny it. I'm mighty serious about it, Miss Golden. I can see it, even if you haven't waked up to it as yet. The absurd part of it was that, at least while he was talking, Mr. Phil Benson did believe what he was saying, though he had borrowed all of his sentiments from a magazine story about hobohemians which he had read the night before. He also spoke of reading good books, seeing good plays, and the lack of good influences in this wicked city. He didn't overdo it. He took leave in ten minutes to find good influences in a Kelly pool parlor on 3rd Avenue. He returned to his room at ten, and, sitting with his shoeless feet cocked up on his bed, read a story in Racy Yarns. While beyond the partition, about four feet from him, Una Golden lay in bed, her smooth arms behind her aching head, and worried about Phil's lack of opportunity. She was finding in his loud impudence a twisted resemblance to Walter Babson's erratic excitability, and that won her, for love goes seeking new images of the god that is dead. Next evening Phil varied his tactics by coming to dinner early, just touching Una's hand as she was going into the dining-room, and murmuring in a small voice, I've been thinking so much of the helpful things you said last evening, Miss Golden. Later, Phil talked to her about his longing to be a great surgeon, in which he had the tremendous advantage of being almost sincere. He walked down the hall to her room, and said good night lingeringly, holding her hand. Una went into her room, closed the door, and for full five minutes stood amazed. "'Why,' she gasped, "'the little man is trying to make love to me.' She laughed over the absurdity of it. Heavens! She had her ideal, the right man. He would probably be like Walter Babson, though more dependable. But whatever the nature of the paragon— he would in every respect be just the opposite of the creature who had been saying good-night to her. She sat down, tried to read the paper, 
tried to put Phil out of her mind, but he kept returning. She fancied that she could hear his voice in the hall. She dropped the paper to listen. "'I'm actually interested in him,' she marveled. "'Oh, that's ridiculous!' End of chapter 9, part 1